Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. In this podcast, I have conversations with artists who like to draw or paint their world from observation. My guests create their art on location, which can mean sitting by the side of the street, taking the window seat at a cafe, drawing commuters inside a bus or a train, or simply looking out of the windows of their home. It is a way to appreciate and record fleeting moments of beauty in our environment. If you're a novice trying to become an artist, I believe this podcast is for you. This podcast is for you if you're already an artist looking for ways to level up. Or if you're neither of those things. If you're simply looking for a way to become a better, more patient observer of your world. I welcome you all to the Sneaky Art Podcast. In today's episode, I look back at the conversations I've had so far. Some of my guests are professional artists with many years of art education behind them. Others, like myself, are entirely self-taught. Some use inks and monochromatic washes, while others paint with a wide spectrum of colors. Some find beauty in urban architecture and vast cityscapes, while others zoom in to focus on everyday human activity inside these big cities. It's a diverse mix of people who come to this activity. But despite this diversity, there are also common threads that run through these conversations. These threads take the form of ideas and goals, circumstances and obstacles, and also solutions to these obstacles. My guests have experienced them in different phases of their artistic journeys, and so have I. I hope that after listening to this episode, you will find the different ways that they also run through you. You might wonder why that matters. I think it matters because of the way we make progress as artists. There is a word which is very important, and that word is permission. As a self-taught artist, I didn't know that I needed permission. It's possible that you feel the same. But that's just not true. We are always seeking permission from other artists whom we consider members of our tribe. It is the great gift of the internet that we can bond with people across the world, that we can find our tribe in strangers that we have never met. They give us the confidence to be ourselves, to express ourselves, and to not feel alone inside our minds. These are powerful influences. I have learned so many things from my fellow urban sketchers. Sometimes I have learned from peering over someone's shoulder as they paint or draw. Sometimes I have picked up tips simply by speaking with them. Sometimes I have gained strength and sometimes companionship. I recorded an episode just this morning with a guest who explained it so beautifully. We are walking alone in a fog and sometimes it is good to see signposts left by those who walked the same way as us. That's what this podcast is about. Consider this. Paul Heaston was an oil painter when he traded his easel and oils for a pocket sketchbook and a fountain pen. Have you ever felt like completely changing your toolkit, but hesitated over taking that big leap? In Paris, Matt was trying to be a travel writer when instead he started doodling his surroundings. Somewhere during his travels, he found a new way to express himself in a more complete way than mere words. There are so many different ways to communicate the complex world we see. Have you ever tried changing the medium of your communication? Uma is an engineer in Silicon Valley, pushing back against a culture that increasingly sees the arts as irrelevant to the life of a scientific researcher. 
we talk about what it means to paint like an engineer. What would you do if your obstacle was the zeitgeist of your entire environment? I have picked some key moments from the conversations that I've had to share with you. But by no means do they summarize the entire conversations themselves. To really put things in context and to see how the thoughts connect with one another, how they build upon each other, I recommend that you listen to the episodes in full. My hope is that this episode will serve as an appetizer and send you back to the older episodes hungry for more. Hello and welcome to this new episode. Let's get right into it. I'm fascinated by the question of how different artists discover the practice of urban sketching or even if they don't know the term simply this practice of drawing on location what happened that gave them the idea to sit down at a street corner or to take out a notebook in a cafe and to make a little drawing it's not a small deal to give a part of your precious leisure time to such an activity and so i always ask my guests how they came to this habit consider the case of paul heaston Paul was an oil painter in the final semester of his MFA program and he was working on life-size canvases in his studio. In episode 2, which is effectively my first conversation, I asked him how he came to start drawing inside a little sketchbook. Here's what he had to say. If you're not familiar with um master's programs and graduate programs in studio art, for the most part it's changing now, but studio art Uh, the master's degree is the terminal degree, which means some programs have three-year uh, programs so that they can um, ensure a certain level of academic rigor that, that goes into that. Because, you know, where I went to school at Montana State University, there's not a PhD in studio art. So, um, so for two years, you kind of work independently and you build up a body of work. And then your third year is supposed to be your thesis year where you sort of, everything is supposed to uh, coalesce into this one big um project or this sort of you know um thematic i don't know everything gels right so the semester prior to my senior my my third year um i wanted to go and study abroad in italy um the reason being that a i thought it was going to be really fun and i hadn't really ever done anything like that i'd only ever been to england when i was about 7 years old so i thought it'd be really cool to go and and to go where um as a painter and as a sort of a semi-traditional um you know portrait and figurative painter you can't go wrong going to italy and looking at art there um and so i i spent that semester this a uh spring of 2007 um in italy and that studio practice which is these large paintings on these big heavy panels it just doesn't it's not portable and and yes i could have bought the materials over there but then getting everything back home just doesn't seem practical either or you know remotely affordable and i was already going deeply i was taking out a lot of loans just to be in italy you know um so um my um the the painting professor i was going i was accompanying i was a graduate student and i was going to be teaching some drawing to undergraduate students as in addition to doing my own studies and then there was a painting professor and an art history professor full professors that were going 
And um, so she was also the head of my committee, my graduate committee. And she said, why don't you bring uh, a moleskin and keep a sort of a travel journal or a sketchbook or whatever. And then you can make larger drawings or small paintings that you can roll up and take home, you know, something like that. And so I said, okay, that sounds like a good idea because the first portion of the semester, we're going to spend a lot of time traveling around anyway. We weren't going to be in one place. And, um, and so I, I started, sort of, I thought I would keep a journal in the sense that I would be drawing where I was, but I'd also be writing about my experiences. And I found that really quickly, I mean, I did about four or five pages where there was sort of half writing, half drawing. Really quickly, the writing disappeared. And instead, I was interested in just sort of drawing my environment, my surroundings. Um, and at first, it was a more narrative approach. I was really trying to give everybody a sense, you know, if anybody was going to look at this at all of, you know, this, the story of me going to Italy. But then I realized I, I was having more fun just sort of picking bits and pieces of things, absent of context that were just interesting to me um, to draw. And, and at first it was mostly people, it was the students I was with. And then it was small environments, like I'm on a bus or I'm on a, a ferry or I'm on a plane and I'll sketch, sketch the interior of that. And then I was like, well, I mean, one thing that Italy has that Montana didn't really have was architecture. Just amazing architecture. I never had much, given it much thought before. I had taken art, art history for, a, you know, a long time. But um, so I could tell you sort of from, a you know, an academic perspective, all sorts of things about architecture, right? But I never really had looked at it in the sense that I hadn't looked at it because I didn't have to draw it, you know. Um, and... And so I was like, well, this is what's what I'm seeing. And this is really interesting and compelling, but I don't know anything about it. I don't know what I'm doing. So in a sort of a naive way, I just started to approach sketching buildings and things like that and landscapes and urban landscapes and, um, and just sort of doing the best I could trying to figure out space. And this is complex space. And I wasn't just interested in like architectural detail and ornament. I was trying to figure out everything between me and the building, what, what's, what's all happening in this square? What's all happening in this plaza? Um, and I want, you know, I wanted to, um, to capture all that in a sketchbook. And that problem became sort of an irresistible challenge. It was like, you know, this is, this is really exciting. This is something I hadn't really thought I would ever be interested in. And, um, and now I'm like, okay, so how do I, figure this out and pen and ink. How do I figure all this space out? Because I had been drawing really shallow and painting really shallow portraits. I mean, not shallow in the sense of superficial, but the, the figure in space, there wasn't really an environment. And so thinking about space was a completely sort of a new challenge. And, uh, and so I filled up my sketchbook right away, my moleskin. It was one of the, the, the medium-sized ones. And then I bought more books over there and I filled them up and filled them up and fill, I just kept filling up sketchbooks. I came back to Montana and while I continued to paint in, in the studio in, you know, the pursuit of my, my thesis year, um, I just kept sketching all around Bozeman, Montana, um, you know, my roommate and my apartment. And I would go and sit outside and sketch the trees and I would go out, you know, sketch the, the apartment building from the outside. And then downtown Bozeman, I would sketch the buildings there. And I mean, it was, it, it was the thing I was looking the, forward to more than going into the studio and painting 
Despite being good at his kind of art, Paul was approaching architecture and city sketches with a kind of unsophistication, a sort of naivete guided by his curiosity, which eventually evolved into the fresh style that he's known for today. In episode 4 I spoke with Uma Kelkar who grew up middle class in Pune and she told me about how drawing outdoors was her first taste of freedom and early self confidence in art. So uh, so the the story is this so I I grew up in India and I grew up in my house was one room okay so the living room dining room bedroom was one room and um, I started going and painting out with commercial artists when I was 15 16 years old and these were professional students of commercial art actually and they just took me in and what i realized was they always painted outside because everybody came from small houses okay <laughs> uh and we used to paint in very busy roads in the middle of roads and parks so to be in the middle of chaos but to be able to have a zen a calm inside your mind while you are painting i didn't realize at that time but that was a superpower that i could protect my own space so that is a drug actually that's a drug that you get that oh my god i have this superpower there can be chaos everywhere but i could be focusing on one thing and i'll be enjoying it uh and as happened as it happened probably did it happen to you that you arted when you were a kid and then life says you have to get be an engineer or a doctor and i love my engineering okay but it meant complete sacrifice of the arts <laughs> come on. we go on to speak about how growing up in india meant being pushed towards certain lines of study and away from artistic expressions this is what we thought growing up meant later in the episode we talk about how uma came back to discover urban sketching as a practice after becoming a parent after becoming an engineer in silicon valley it's a great story and you should listen to the episode in full to appreciate her journey in episode 3 Shari tells me she was looking for a way to bring drawing back into her life after a long hiatus but in a time and resource efficient way. This very specific need led her towards urban sketching, watercolors and portable sketchbooks. I didn't really know what urban sketching was when I went back to sketching in 2011 but I think um that I bought a book uh it I think it was a Danny Gregory book an illustrated journey where it's different sketchbook artists and uh and their work and the sketches in there that sort of portrayed the everyday were really fascinating to me you know it didn't they weren't pretty pictures necessarily but they were people chronicling their everyday lives and it was really interesting to me because at that point my kids were finally a little older and i had a little more free time and i was able to say okay i have to bring drawing back into my life but i had a very busy life because i was teaching uh graphic design and i still had a freelance business in graphic design as well so how could i bring drawing back into my life in a meaningful way but that wasn't very time consuming so i wanted to just um just start keeping a sketchbook even a very tiny 3 inch by 5 inch sketchbook that i could carry with me and just do a 5 or 10 minute drawing every day 
so that's how it evolved. I, I, I started looking online, like who else does sketching, you know, and then I found Urban Sketchers. And then it was just an absolute revelation when I found Urban Sketchers blog. And there were these hundred people who posted about their daily lives and their, the world around them. And um, I, just, I just found it so, so thrilling. First of all, because there was the international component of you know, seeing people's work from around the world. And so I said, this is something I just, I was so excited, I have to be part of this. So that's when I started uh, thinking, well, maybe I could go to a symposium. And the first one that I went to in 2012 in Santo Domingo was the first time I participated in a symposium. So, um, you know, that idea that I could just uh, do a sketch uh, and it, I, I could do it anywhere. And it, it didn't have to be like, oh, I take out all my paints and I set up a big thing. And it was something very portable. Um, and that, uh, and that connection with everyday life was something very attractive to me. This is perhaps one of the best reasons to get into urban sketching. It does not demand very much from us. It can be as simple as you need it to be. To this day, my drawings are created by just one or two pens and a small portable sketch pad that I carry around in my pocket. The idea is that if it's easy to begin, you're more likely to make a habit of it. Another guest who had a very compelling reason to become an urban sketcher was Matt in episode 6. Like me, Matt wanted to be, above all else, a writer. He was looking for a way to communicate his experiences as a travel writer when he suddenly became interested in sketching. I had almost never done observation drawing before that. I was always doing things from, from my mind. And then I, uh, I traveled for nine months in West Africa. And there I started drawing scenes from outside, you know, sometimes from photos, sometimes from uh, on location, a mix of both. I was always doing pencil sketches, very detailed, and then ink, and then watercolor. So in nine months, I, I brought back 12 a5 watercolors so like nothing almost but when i came back and, and showed the drawings for the first time in my life people told me oh this is very beautiful because my drawings were never beautiful before it was funny or when i was a kid i was drawing dragon ball z or stuff like this you know or just or just funny comics and and that's that's when it started really I felt I had touched something new for me and and actually I loved traveling so I thought after a while I thought I want to try to make travel sketchbooks and then sorry it's a bit long but <laughs> then I went to Iran uh, and I had the project of doing lots of watercolor paintings there but also at the same time so many things were happening to me funny stories that I, I made a comic, like kind of comic sketchbook and watercolors at the same time. And and one day I was on a mountain, I was alone. I had met very, really, really nice people before that. And I, I, I really felt um, so much aligned with myself, incredibly aligned, the most aligned I had ever been. And so I decided I was 30 by this moment. 
I was single and I thought you have almost no strings attached you have a little bit money ahead of you you have to try to to become a full-time illustrator sketcher whatever you have to time to, to to try to make a living out of your drawings and I made this promise to myself to quit my job and 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 try to make travel book sketches blah, 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 or something like this and then so I started reading everything about what we call in French carnet de voyage it's so travel uh, travel sketchbooks and I, I I stumbled up on urban sketchers in a book and then I went to meet them in Paris to meet the Paris group and it changed my life <laughs> It was simply amazing because before I met them and before, so I, I, I think I, I met them for the first time in 2015. My Iran uh, trip was in 2014. And, and I took uh, like a three or four days workshop in the summer of 2016 with different urban sketchers, including Marion Rivolier, Delphine Priolo, Norberto Dorentes. And this is when I became an urban sketcher because before that I could only do the pencil sketch and then the ink and then watercolor at home and it would take four hours for a very small drawing and they they taught me how to do everything on location and then I was like wow that's amazing in episode six of the podcast Matt and I talk about what it feels like to be a travel artist under lockdown Matt turned this situation around for himself and recently published a book of sketches made during lockdown in Paris. Give the episode a listen and I highly recommend you check out his most amazing book. Another feature consistent across these stories is the influence of local urban sketching chapters and how they have inspired different artists to change the way they draw to approach how they feel about art and to basically even equip them with tools and techniques that make them the kind of artists they want to be. In episode 7, I asked California-based artist Suhita why she sought the urban sketching community and how she got into it. Before I knew urban sketchers, I found Danny Gregory's book, Everyday Matters, and also his online, his Yahoo group. There used to be a Yahoo group for Everyday Matters. And that's what um, I became part of and posted them. And that's where I met the first online, the first urban sketchers I met. I don't think I knew about urban sketchers. I'm sure I met quite a few. One of the early ones I remember who was also on Everyday Matters was Liz Steele. And from that, I came to know of urban sketchers. And then I think I really came to know of them around when they were having their first symposium. And I had little kids and it was I was drawing only around home and not traveling much. And it's like, one day I will go to this. And, but, I, but I started going online and then I started, uh, I became a correspondent at some point on the blog, which used to be much more active a while ago. And... Uh, I can't remember how many years back Barcelona is. The Barcelona Symposium, six or seven years ago, I applied to be correspondent. Never been to one, terrified at the idea of doing it. And I got in and I was correspondent. So that was my first ever symposium. It was quite something. Yeah. yeah. So it was, it was, it was, a. it happened, it came out of things. I followed up on it. It was an 
mostly an online group for me to, you know, to post and share with and also to see other people's worlds. So it was nice to, even though my world was little at this point, I got to see uh, bigger and different worlds. And we had one common thread, right? I, I really like that, that we had one common thread that we love to draw and everything else is super diverse. I find it hard to have super diverse friends, but in Urban Sketchers, you have like a huge diversity. Yeah, it's so interesting to speak to the different urban sketchers who have all been, say, even people who've been in it for 10, 15 years, people who've been in it for five years and at all various levels. It's amazing how the global online community uh, is an entryway because you get to see so many different styles. You get to see so many different types of influences and it lowers all these entry barriers. So somebody who you know, if you are trying to join any group of artists, there is always an entry barrier about, am I also an artist? Can I call myself that kind of artist? Can I call myself even an artist at all? But Urban Sketchers offers these, these ways to be part of a community which is doing something it enjoys without any form of entry barriers. There's no entry barrier of medium. There's no entry barrier of skill level. There's no entry barrier of education. It, it sort of takes the focus of uh, the craft. I mean, the craft of drawing is, it, I think it matters a big deal, but not to be drawing. To start drawing, you just have to want to draw. And in Urban Sketches, if you are drawing the world around you, whatever that is, and you are willing to share it, at that point, you're an Urban Sketcher. And that's a, I love that, that you can be, working on learning to draw you can be getting better at all this you can be anywhere in the journey but we're all urban sketches if we will draw and share our world the lack of gatekeeping is such a great part of the urban sketching community and its byproduct is that artists who have been enabled to think of themselves as artists or as legitimate painters or sketchers don't simply have to operate afterwards within this genre it empowers you to be an artist in every way that you wish to be. It demonstrates that sometimes the largest obstacle in our path is of our own creation. In these conversations with urban sketchers, I have also understood the other obstacles people face in becoming artists. Learning about the obstacles of others and how they have overcome them can be a source of both strength and inspiration. In episode 4, I asked Uma what she means when she says that she paints like an engineer. And her answer revealed her solution to a problem placed before her by a tech-dominated, male-dominated environment within Silicon Valley. So, um, yeah, this was meant to, this was a tag a friend of mine and I came up with to have exactly this discussion, to provoke. And the question arises from people who ask me about this is because it makes them uncomfortable. We don't think engineers can assess beauty in general. And we definitely don't think if we say I engineer like an artist, that would be a serious comment, right? So the resistance that I'm trying to display by putting up this label is against being cookie cut into a personality because of choice of profession. It also comes from a personal stigma 
are faced as a female engineer where I'm seen less intense or less committed to engineering because I paint. So I want people to be aware that engineers can paint and I want artists to know that, well, I want artists to know that engineers can paint and I want engineers to know that even if I paint, I still can engineer well. Um, I wanted to stress to the world that there is cross-pollination of strengths that happens when you allow one habit to inform the other. We go on to talk about how we carry a lot of guilt to do certain things the right way and how overcoming that guilt can sometimes be the hardest job of all. Leaving behind the world of scientific academia, I faced a lot of similar doubts in my own mind. Some of my doubts were not simply about what people might say. I had tasted achievement and I had climbed a ladder to some extent and disengaging from that climb to start another journey afresh can be a very difficult choice to make. How do you make that kind of choice in your life? I asked Luis Chimues in episode eight. Uh, I think it was, it started as a, an impulse and then slowly I started to make it grow in my head uh, and try to understand if that would be the right decision or not. Uh, but I think as well, I've, when I was that age, like 30s, like you said, I was pretty much convinced what I was able to do so far in my profession, which was a graphic designer. So I was doing graphic design, 3D motion design for about 10 years already. And once I finished university, my first goal was to get a full-time job and be good at it, at it. And so for me, that chapter was accomplished. And I don't, I don't know if it was the, the 30 years Christ changing age, whatever you can call it, but I felt uh, the urge of doing something bigger to my life, you know, to, I couldn't see myself doing it for the next 10 years, the same thing. I would look around to my colleagues and, and think, this is nice. It's well paid. It's a bit stressful and deadlines and everything. Every every designer knows that. But I don't see myself doing this. So I, I, I don't know. I projected myself for the next five years. And I asked myself the most basic question, which was, what makes me happy? What What is the thing that I really love to do? And, of course, sketching was there. Traveling was there. Many things were there. But I had to, you know... Um, make it a narrow as as much as I could to understand what it was. And and I think it, that was it, that uh, along the trips that I was doing and bringing my sketchbook, I was really in the bubble, in the zone, like people normally say. And, and I did enjoy a lot that moment. And I said to myself, look, if it's to do it, it has to be now. Uh, I cannot wait too long until I have compromised. I didn't have kids. I didn't have wife. I didn't have anything that was really holding me to stay in Lisbon, Portugal, and with my work. So I paying rent was just basically it. And of course, the hobbies and friends and family. So I, I, I was a bit, I, I went to a selfish mode, which I think every creative has to be. And my selfish mode was forget about what people are going to say to you and scare you to not do it. Just focus in your goal in what you, in what you believe. And give it time. And I, and I decided to do it in five years to give the time that I thought would be enough to grow 
as a sketcher, as a artist, as a I don't know, passionate about art and traveling, and grow that, grow something that nobody tells you to do. Like you go to school, nobody tells you you should travel. You go to your parents never never gonna let you travel free as you want. They always want to tide you at home and be safe and secure. And so I felt I felt like, you know, I have to do this for myself. Nobody's going to tell me you should do this because it's good for you. This is what helped Luis overcome his hesitations and decide to begin the world sketching tour. He traveled all five continents over the course of some years and filled lots of pages of lots of sketchbooks. I highly recommend this episode that we've done together. It's the longest episode I've done so far because Luis has so many fascinating stories from so many different parts of the world and so many images to offer of these worlds for which I did not have a very concrete visual reference in my mind. But what if the obstacle that's stopping you from drawing on location is just simple embarrassment? Don't count it out, because that's the reason I started as a sneaky artist. In episode 7, Suhita and I talk about our experience as urban sketching instructors and segue to the common hesitations that we hear from people about sketching outdoors. So one, I've been teaching now for about six or seven years, and I taught before that I taught graphic design, but not urban sketching. And uh, also what I did, though, is I sent out about 100 questionnaires, more than I sent out lots of questionnaires, I got 100 replies from urban sketchers in different parts of the world, I sent it to many USK chapters. And I particularly asked for beginner sketchers, what their fears are, what's intimidating, because it's I have a one-person experience on being a beginner and I have five people I can ask that might be beginners, but there is power in what you see as um, the collective and what really intimidates them. And I, I do use uh, that as sort of an entryway to what I address in my book because it might not be the same as, like, like many people fear drawing outside and fear drawing people. Neither of these were my initial fears. I, I didn't think about it. But that doesn't mean it isn't a super common one. So I did try and writing what is not a new subject, you know, how to draw from observation on location, but through the lens of what people found particularly difficult about starting as urban sketchers. So uh, it's really about refiguring content and thinking of some strategies for breaking down the steps. Like you never have to straight away sit in a cafe and draw or stand in a busy street and draw. Draw things in your house, draw out of your window, uh, find ways to like one of the ways I tell people to draw in a cafe is to go sit in the back of the cafe and draw somebody against the windows where they're backlit, they become just a silhouette. You know, it takes away all these drawing features and stuff and you draw big silhouettes. And also you aren't seen when you're sitting in the back of a cafe, you're much less observed. And, and so it's baby steps towards doing what will with practice become, you know, you'll become confident at. So it was just strategies for getting you to where I'd like you to get, but knowing what you told me you are afraid of. What are the, what are some of these interesting things that do intimidate people? Can you share some of these fears that beginners have? So so definitely big ones is uh, things like just sitting outside. What about the fact that people will look at my page? Uh, you know, 
from experience, I can tell you whether you draw well or badly, wherever you are in the journey, people are delighted to see somebody drawing outside. I mean, they're just amazed that you draw. Um, so, so definitely that one takes coming to. Another one I think is hard is, for sure, it's hard to draw moving objects. So that's something you address in baby steps. And it's not something you should do the first time you step out. If you've never drawn outside, draw something that sits in this place. I say go draw the fire hydrant on your corner. It's a good place to start, to stand there and draw it. Another one that I think is really hard for people is what to draw. There is so much when you're standing outside. And for that, you know, you can break up things into compositions, but the main idea is that anything carries a story, right? So begin with a little corner instead of saying, I have to draw this vista. So I try addressing things like that. These, these, these are the big ones. These are the three big ones, drawing outside, fear of drawing people, and also uh, the fact that there is so much, what do you capture? Generally, I highly recommend episode 7 with Suhita and episode 3 with Shari as excellent places to get lots of small tips and some great practical advice. In episode 9, I asked Marek the same question about, about this fear that people have regarding sketching outdoors and, and how does he answer it when people ask him this at urban sketching workshops, how does he feel comfortable picking a spot in a crowded place? Oh man, do you really want to open that can of worms? <laughs> I mean, the, the location, oh, that's a, that's a big subject. And, uh, and it certainly it's, uh, it's difficult to, to many people that uh, are perhaps a little shy to go out in the middle of the main you know, square of town and sit down and sketch. Um, I guess I had the privilege of doing this for long enough, uh, and uh, I was in a way even forced to draw in public many years ago because the very first time I went to Italy on my own, I was a university student and uh, effectively selling my watercolors and sketches to the tourists was my way of making my 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 day. and. And that's, that's what I was doing uh, in there. So therefore, I was a little bit, you know, in a situation where I, I had to get the exposure. Uh, but I understand uh, that people are sometimes shy uh, and they don't want to, to show their, you know, their work or they don't even want to present themselves in a situation where it could be uh, of discomfort to anyone else. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult it's a kind of worms in a way, but it can be it can be addressed uh, with um, a couple of uh, suggestions. I think um, one is find a spot where you are sitting, sort of you have something behind your back. So whether it's a tree or a bench or some kind of a signage, some street architecture, anything like that, just so nobody sort of jumps you from behind. That helps, in my opinion. It also puts you automatically outside of the main flow of uh, the traffic. There's, there's pedestrians going through along a sidewalk. Sometimes um, the pedestrians will take an issue or even law enforcement can take an issue uh, with you being sort of in the middle of, uh, of the flow. It certainly does happen, but before COVID, that was an issue in Venice, in Italy, where the, the, the local... Um, municipal police would not allow sketchers 
to sit down in groups pretty much anywhere along the main piazza, the Piazza San Marco, simply because uh, that was impeding the traffic of the many, many tourists and so on and so forth. So, um, so I, I was there maybe five years ago or six, and, um, and I did some sketching, but I was there by myself. So I only sort of got a look from them. And since I was already as, as far away from the main traffic, then they didn't really say anything. But I figured that if there was uh, a group of us, they certainly would have had an issue. So that's one way. Stay out of the main flow. And then if you, it's up to you whether you determine that you want to have a conversation with a passerby or not. And in my experience, Minshant, it's been always positive. All those years that I've been drawing outside, it's only been positive experiences. I find that, I figure that if somebody doesn't like my work or is not interested, they just really pass by and they don't say anything. I haven't had any negative um, experience, well, in the last uh, six, seven years of, uh, of doing this sort of under the urban sketching agenda. Everyone that approached me, they were there because they wanted to learn something, they wanted to say something, they wanted to meet me or, you know, sometimes even inquire if they can buy it. Hey, mm-hmm. yes, please, <laughs> take it away. <laughs> but but a lot of urban sketchers feel, or well, let's say people who are trying to get into urban sketching, people who want to draw these things, this is the number one worry that you hear about. What will people say? What will people think? And I've also thought this. It's been a very large part of how I draw and where I draw as a result. But again, just like you say, I've never ever had a negative experience. No one has ever objected to what I'm doing. I've always been approached with very positive curiosity. Absolutely. Same here. I've even drew up private homes from public though this that's the one differentiation that we should make that uh, as long as you're not stepping on private ground then uh, you know you sort of you are in between your rights but it's not only within the rights it's just being decent towards people um it happened not so far ago a few months ago i was drawing this uh, wonderful original house in in toronto and i was actually drawing it from not even the its own sidewalk but from the sidewalk across the road on the other side because that was a better vantage point there was a better view and uh, you know after a, uh, about half an hour or 45 minutes i can see that they then they noticed me and they eventually they come out the owner comes out and he's just approaching me and saying i'm just curious i know you are drawing and we just wanted to see what you are drawing is that okay so of course you know we we, we chatted for long and uh, he actually ended up uh, that particular drawing is with him now after after all so it's it's been a most pleasant exchange of uh, of information and of you know the people that are interested in art they are decent people to start with uh, so i don't fear them and the ones that are not interested they're simply they'll just go on their way and and they i don't think that anyone will interfere with uh, you as a sketcher being on the street drawing. If you have a um, little hesitation or a concern about uh, people approaching you and maybe interrupting your flow, because that's one thing. What uh, I was uh, using before, and I can suggest that, is uh, get a set of uh, headphones, you know, those earphones, and uh, just put them in and make them very visible. 
they could be you know those bright yellow or something or some orange color highlighter color put them in and it doesn't matter whether you actually have any music uh, that uh, that you're listening to or not because it can just go into your pocket but as long as you have them those in and people can see that then no one will ever approach you to talk to you I completely endorse this tactic. I have also used it many times while sketching on buses and trains where I feel like people around like there is naturally people sitting or standing near you on a train. I had this experience also on the subway here in Toronto where I used to draw people on the subway quite often. I mean that's pretty much how I started drawing people. I was I'm an architect, so drawing people is not really coming to me in a natural way and I knew that. So I was forcing myself a little bit to start drawing, you know, things that would be made out not of straight sticks, but they would be made out of some, you know, sort of softer form. And uh, and I so I started sketching people on the subway just in pencil or pen uh, in a small notebook. And then I realized that uh, if I actually don't have a movement of my head where I'm looking down and then my face is looking up and then it's looking down and it's looking up. But instead of doing that particular movement, I just move my eyeballs only. So I'm looking either through my glasses down to my to my paper and then I'm looking a little bit above my glasses to the subject that I am currently sketching and the head movement doesn't happen. Then no one really notices that I am sketching people on the subway. That was a big discovery to me. Um, that second discovery was that it does make a difference what time of the day you try to sketch people in public transit. If you were sketching them at 7 a.m., then they are mostly zombies. They haven't had their coffee yet, and they will really want notice. Or maybe they are reading their own you know, book or they are on their phone. And those, those are actually great because once somebody is doing something, they are immersed in that particular uh, yeah, action and they will not uh, move on you much and they will not leave on you because so many times we sketch people in transit and you, know, you just start, you have you know, an ear and half of an eye and then the person leaves. All things considered, it's fairly easy to start becoming an urban sketcher. And the next step is even easier because it's filled with this supercharged enthusiasm. You proceed on a path of aggressive learning, picking up new skills, improving on your older ones, exploring new media, new tools, making discoveries about your work and things that are newly possible for you to do. But what path do you follow? And how do you know your path is quote unquote the right one? Is there such a thing as the right path? I asked my guests these questions. Their answers were deeply personal, suggesting that the correct route is one that we find ourselves, and it's informed by our own inspiration and our own curiosities. In episode 3, I asked Shari for intuitive ways for people to understand composition, without any formal knowledge or understanding of things like the golden ratio. Here's what she had to say. And I think for me, it's kind of intuitive now because, you know, over all the years of uh, working as a graphic designer, my main focus was usually um, working on magazine layouts. That, that's what I really loved. 
So magazine layouts are always, you know, working with contrast with a big photo and then a big letter of typography and then small letters. And so all that balance and contrast and creating a focus on the page is the same thing as creating a focus in your sketch. In a similar way, I've used images and still shots from TV shows that I've liked. And I've frozen those videos, I've taken a snapshot and I've looked at those pictures afterwards just to understand what about them worked for me. And I find this is a really good way to intuitively grasp composition, just like how Shari mentions with magazine layouts. In episode four, I asked Uma to break down her process because she has a fascinating process of not only approaching every drawing, but also approaching the sum total of her work in an incremental, progressive manner. I give myself the ability to make intermediate goals for painting so that when I complete each level, I am able to feel accomplished. Um, I know that I'm my own customer when it comes to painting and I have a finite time and finite number of iterations I can do before I can deliver a painting as a product. So that, in, so I don't go about an infinite loop <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, in painting. Yeah. You have to set goals so that you know what you are iterating towards. Right, right, right. Exactly. And um, it also helps me dissect things very... Uh, um, I dissect it like a hardware bug. Exact, when, you find, when you find a bug in engineering, you never say... You say the product is bad, it doesn't work for me. You never say your whole engineering team is asinine, Right. But as painters, we often say, oh, the whole, a failed painting is like a reflection of you. I don't get into that more. <laughs> it is just a failed painting. I'll see what the failures are, put in process to fix that, and push. Next iteration. This is a wonderful, dispassionate way to approach the job of making progress. Fixing for one thing at a time, controlling for other changes, quite like an experiment. In this way, you're not at the mercy of your own creative spirit, but you're trying to work it like a professional with their tools. Let's go back to that conversation with Shari. I just remembered I also picked her brain about hacking color theory. So the, the, the first workshop that I ever taught was in Barcelona, and it was called Triad Symphony. And it was about using just a triad of primary colors. So to me, the easiest way to understand color, and in fact, I did a thing in Chicago too that was similar to that, um, is to just use three colors. So I suggest just using uh, a yellow, a red, and a blue, and working with those three same pigments, like just pick you know, a cool yellow, a cool red, and a blue, um, and work with those for a very long time till you truly understand what they do and how they mix together. And if you pick, you know, the pigments that I suggest are maybe like a, um, you know, like a Hansa yellow light and an alizarin crimson and an ultramarine blue, because you can get bright orange with that and bright purple and bright green. And you can, because the alizarin and the ultramarine are quite dark, you can also get interesting darks. And if you mix all three together, you can get neutrals. So you, pick three colors that you have on your palette instead of using the 12, most people have about 12 colors. Instead, just limit yourself and really, really understand them. Then 
when you add one more color to those, then you'll start to, you know, it's sort of a scientific process, right? You, you have your, your, the ones you understand, and then you add one more, then you'll see how that changes it. I hope it's been useful so far. In this episode, I chose not to share the particularly revelatory moments, but instead the things which I think might resonate with you. By vibing with people whose work we like, we empower our own art and gain confidence in our own journey. So let's talk about this podcast journey for a moment. I took a short break from making new episodes because we have just moved from Chicago to Vancouver. But the hiatus has also given me a good chance to evaluate my work so far and to consider its trajectory. As I've shared before, I do all the tasks of making and putting out this podcast by myself. It's a lot of work, finding potential guests, reaching out to them, thinking up questions, editing, producing and releasing the final episodes. The actual job of speaking to the guests during our Zoom calls almost feels like an afterthought. It's a lot of work, but I enjoy doing all of it. My guiding principle behind my work is my own curiosity. I ask the questions that I'm curious to know the answers to, and I speak with guests whose work or their process intrigues me. Of late, I have also received a lot of great feedback from listeners who enjoy my line of conversation and the depths that I'm able to explore in my own style. This gives me a lot of confidence and makes it easier for me to keep going forward and trusting my own judgment. If you enjoy a particular episode, if it gives you something of value, I would love to hear back from you. You can also support my work now with a small donation, the price of just one cup of coffee, or two or three, just as you like. Simply go to www.sneakyartist.com support, or you can click the link in the episode description. Coffee keeps the world going around and certainly helps me to keep working at this big job. Listeners who support me in this way also get the chance to ask me or a previous guest any question whose answer I would then share in the next episode. I'm coming up with some more gift ideas and giveaways for supporters, so check back at the link for the latest offerings. Another way to stay in touch with the thoughts and the processes behind this podcast is by subscribing to my weekly newsletter. In the Sneaky Art post, I share my latest art, my ideas, my inspirations from speaking to such varied guests, and also my own journey of self-education to become an artist. You can find the link for my newsletter also in the episode description. In episode 5, I spoke to Donald Owen Colley a good friend with whom I've sketched together many times in Chicago. Sometimes you look at someone's finished piece and you can't even tell how they started on it. A lot of intimidation comes from just that first touch of pen or brush to paper. This is where it really pays off being able to watch someone draw over their shoulder. In the absence of that privilege, as COVID times show us, I did the next best thing by asking some of my guests to detail their process from start to finish. I have seen Don work his magic on paper many times, and he begins in the most unusual way. Not a line or a color or a shape, but sometimes you see him start just with small smudges that he makes with an inked thumb or the edge of a marker pen. 
So when I spoke to Don for episode five of the podcast, I asked him about this. How how does he get started? What's the deal with these smudges? Here's what he had to say. I have a variety of different approaches. First off, and it has a lot to do with my、um, comfort zone. You might say, am I drawing a lot? Is the line there for me? Am I seeing contours very clearly? Do I get a sense of space? And、uh, are things moving in front of me? Is is the situation dynamic, or is it static?、Um, do I want the drawing? Am I going to elaborate on the drawing, or do I think this is just a quick sketch and I don't have much time to do anything? So that those things sort of determine. How I approach I approach every drawing the same way, which is in this respect. I ask myself, what am I doing? And that that opens up once I decide what I want to what I want to go, what I want to take with it, how much time I want to invest, what my time frame looks like. That that sets in place an editing process, and which is either work with brevity or elaborate. And if I just sometimes do a medium value or a light value smudge. I can block in basic forms, and if a person's moving, nothing is fixed. It just gets me on the page, and I get basic proportions or I get basic localities. And then, then it's a what's crucial.、Uh, and if somebody's face is moving a lot, then maybe I develop the body until I have a moment to catch the face.、Um, so in court, for example, when I draw. In court, I've got jury. The jury is pretty static. If if I'm drawing a lawyer, they could be up for only so much time moving. And if I'm drawing、um, a prisoner that's come in and he's just there for a couple of minutes, I don't have a lot of time to set things up. So I, like you, like you, that's where I might rely on my my contour work much more rapidly. And if getting an exact likeness isn't So crucial. Then I just I'm kind of knocking in something. It's it's sort of like you're setting down these anchors in places for, uh, it's it's a way to compose the scene almost like where the big elements are going to be whenever you find the time or the right right moment to put them in. Yeah, it 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 is. And you know, if you let your eyes go out of focus and just sort of see things as blurry shapes and blobs, basic shapes. It's remarkable how sometimes I get more of an accuracy of that because I'm knocking the person in relative to where the the masses are, and then I can come back in, and I can draw the the particulars on top of that. So you're going from the general to the specific, from the general to the specific. That's a great idea to keep in mind if you are drawing on location. Another artist whose work. Just fascinates me in this way is Paul Wang, with whom I spoke in episode ten. Paul's work is a splash of lines and colors, and it's nearly impossible to deduce where it could have begun or how. Which part of it inspired the other, and how did he make his journey across the page? I asked Paul to tell me about this, and his answer was quite illuminating. I like to tell people that you know our mind works at tremendous speed, and if you think about those creative inputs, they're like light bulb moments going off at the same time. So I often have to hold quite a few tools in my hands just to respond to you know those inputs and respond to them fast enough. Because a lot of times, if we're just doing one thing, 
uh, and we we were not aware of you know what's happening now here, then those uh, impulses and creative moments can pass. So I'm responding to it, and all, and also I'm asking myself why not. And uh, what if try, if I try this and that? So you find me mixing up things uh, frequently, uh, just to keep you know the ball juggling in the air, and also it excites me because I'm also playing a game with myself, so that I'm not always doing the same thing over and over again. And I also liken the drawing painting process like cooking. Um, it's spontaneous. Uh, you also don't want to get your dish burnt, so therefore you have to, you know, take calculated risks. Um, sometimes you may have just tweaked something, uh, even with the same ingredient, you can get a slightly different flavor out of it. So if I were doing, if I were to do step one to ten over and over again every time I go out, I'll be really, really bored, you know, and it doesn't give yeah. me joy, you know, in sketching outdoors. Joy is an important part of building a sustainable practice. If all the good results only emerge from sticking to something over the long haul, it is crucial that we be able to stick to our habits. So how do we stick to a habit? I asked my guests questions around this central theme, and increasingly, it appears, the idea is really simple at its core. We stick to our habits if we stick to our curiosity. Curiosity is the key to joy, and joy fuels that sustainable practice which produces great results. When I first became an urban sketcher, my great curiosity was the city of Chicago. I wanted to see every neighborhood, I wanted to walk every street, and I wanted to see every cool person do every cool thing. So I set myself a project. I called it 30 Days of Chicago. Every day, I would go to a new part of the city, give myself an hour or so and draw from observation. Because I was so new to the city, I would see exciting new things every day. So I drew everything that excited me and everything that made me curious, realizing pretty soon that my curiosity lay in the many facets of human interaction that we see within the urban landscape. The questions like, how do people talk to each other? Where do they meet? What public amenities do they use? What do they do when they are bored? What do they do when they are excited? When they're at work or when they're on a break? In episode 5, Don Colley shared with me his fascination for characters in the big city and the different personalities that he's able to depict with his drawings. So one of the things, if you go out there and you're in an urban environment, you're definitely going to draw not just the variety of architecture and disparity, you're going to draw the variety of people's experiences. And that's that's a strong that's a strong narrative for me. And again, going back to the comment that I'm a frustrated filmmaker, you know, I want to uh, I want to capture what what essentially makes an urban environment a sense of what we did at this time, who we were, and and that means clothing, how diverse the population is. Um, is there a sense of interaction? Are people contained in themselves? So the whole thing of wearing headsets and books, you know, uh, is sometimes people creating their own environment. They want to create their soundtrack. They don't want to listen to the soundtrack playing over here. They 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 are sealing themselves off in the midst of a of a heavily populated situation, and and that's why I don't wear headphones when I'm drawing. I actually am trying to be immersed in, in the time and get cues any kind of cue i can take 
because the work I did is for so many years as, a, as an artist making paintings and prints was about societies either collaborating or in conflict. And, and we have both on full view right now. So, so for me, when I go out, uh, um, I'm just, there's something going to happen and, and I can catch it. So I've seen crime happen and I stop and I draw. I've seen people on the street who are homeless that were painting and trying to sell paintings, trying to make a living of it. And uh, to me, that's uh, as important to, that you see clearly those kind of things as it is how I can port, uh, to see perspective. The human element of an urban environment is so informative. It's so informative. And, and one of the things when I go out to draw people is, is it through empathy or what you know or, or what you can imagine as to, to find out what's going on? And so I see people when they're wearing clothes, do the clothes tell you what their tribe is? Are they goth? Are they punk? Are they a businessman? And I find that search compelling for an artist to go out and, and to, if it's there and it's not in your drawings, it's by, an, it's, it's by, by purposeful exclusion. Why? So that's the thing about when you say, what am I doing when I'm drawing? I am capturing this building in the light and everything else is brushed aside. So for me, when I go out there, sometimes the buildings are very important. Other times the building is just where it takes place. But what's going on there is so much more compelling to me. Don goes on to describe some of his courtroom sketches, including a particularly interesting case whose drawing became the cover image of our episode. We discuss how illustrations can sometimes elevate a scene beyond a photograph in the right context. I highly recommend this episode for anyone that is interested in incorporating human activity into their sketchwork. In episode 3, I spoke to Shari and asked her what makes her curious to pick up her brush every day because she too has a wonderful regular practice routine. To me, it was never so much the subject. It was always uh, the actual watercolor paint that I found fascinating. You know, it wasn't so much what we were painting, but how it moved around on the paper that I always found fascinating. And, and uh, uh, you know, I, I continued painting and, and then I eventually uh, went into I went to university and I studied graphic design, but even taking all those graphic design courses, my complementary courses were always painting and drawing and, you know, doing things that were related to graphic design, but not, uh, you know, not uh, career oriented, in other words. And, you know, at the time that I studied at Concordia University, and the instructors were, there were a lot of abstract painters. But for me, even back then, um, I guess what always interested me was looking at things and drawing them. So drawing from observation, I would say, interested me from way back when. We can find answers to our curiosity even in enclosed limited spaces. In episode 7, I speak with Suhita about seizing every small opportunity to make art. Both she and I like to sketch people in action, and both of us like to draw quickly. What might sound like a time constraint 
actually works like freedom because it opens her up to drawing opportunities that simply do not occur to other sketchers. Suhita explains how she finds inspiration everywhere by being ready to draw anywhere. Uh, I've drawn all my life, but I think this, this uh, I would say this last 11-year phase of drawing on an almost continual basis, uh, that's been defined by the fact that I started drawing in little pockets of time between a full-time job and a two- and four-year-old. Uh, and and just that, I think, dictated how I could draw, small in a book, and where I drew, which is uh, wherever I am when I find a little bit of time. Um, my subjects also became uh, what was around me, which is two toddlers. They move. <laughs> time, time, um, the time you have at a certain spot or the time you get to capture something is short. So I think it started with that. I can't say my, it may be what I'm, oh, I've always been comfortable with. Um, I don't have a plan or a vision for what I draw, but I do draw where I am. And even for somebody who loves to travel, and this is pre-COVID, of course, and travels a lot, that still 90, 95% of my life is pretty domestic and at home, right? And I don't, um, I draw all the time. So I'm not just a when I travel drawer. So so just by by default, what I'm drawing is mostly what my life is, which is pretty domestic and about kids and home. In Paul Wang's work, I find beautiful colors and meandering lines, which he uses to recreate scenes of busy activity and urban chaos. In episode 10, I asked him what he's looking for when he picks a scene and how he knows that he has found something worth drawing. Oh, I like uh, messy corners. You know, if the storefront has a lot of mess or things are overlapping, uh, then I find I, I really gravitate towards it because that it, it gives me a lot of things to play with. Like I could overlap shapes. I could smash colors together. Uh, I could see how the 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 lines formed by the edges of all this mess has to lead me up and out and around, you know. So you can almost imagine I'm building a crossword puzzle. So that goes that that kind of conversation goes on in my head, like oh, can I piece them together like a jigsaw puzzle? Uh, and uh, what are where are the intersections? You know, uh, what do they share in common? Uh, where do they break away? Uh, sometimes I'll see things spiraling. So I often think about drawing. Uh, I use this phrase, drawing from the heart. So it's like your own heart. It it uh, it starts from the center and it supplies you know blood to all parts of your body. It's a bit like our my drawing, my uh, my painting. I find a heart space, and then from there I start to distribute, and then they often circulate back to also this focal point as well. So there is this collaboration, uh, yet when I meander away, I can create little conflicts as well, so that you know you, I stop you in your track, I, I, I draw you in, so that you can also observe, why is he doing this? What's going on there? And, I've, and, and by doing that, I take five more seconds from your viewing time. Finding your heart space, or even finding comfort and familiarity, can seem impossible when you paint while traveling. Yet, Luis, my guest in episode 8, seems to thrive in places that are unfamiliar and uncomfortable. I ask him about some of the places that I've never seen and have little visual reference for. 
What is it like to draw in places where you are such a foreigner in so many different ways? Before I, I, I was getting to Russia, I was already thinking how I'm going to sketch those churches, you know, or, or the, the light, or how can I paint truthfully the colors that I'm going to see, or even the, the white-skinned people, how can I'm going to make it so bright, or, or the, the blonde, and, and be so delicate. And when I was going to Asia, was the same question how i'm gonna draw the faces again how i'm gonna it was always like once i was finishing a country and saying like okay i'm i i know i'm safe now i can i know the coin i know i know to make the count the the mats to 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 to, to think okay one one euro means this and i know i know the food what water once you're starting to feel comfortable time to change time it's reset and sketching was the same thing. Like when I when I started to see those pagodas in in China and have to sketch really perfect circles or or different style of people or I don't know food. The food was always different. I I, I started to again. Okay, I need to adapt, adapt, adapt. And I think that's the, the that's the the best. Um, I don't know. Uh, learn or the the best class I had during this trip was was that variety that made me never get bored uh, of the same subject. So yes, sketching sketching was always my big motivation to go to these new places. I, I remember that I went to the Great Wall of China and I was so nervous that the first sketch was a big dream too, to sleep over there. So I went and I slept over there. And I mean... This is not legal, but I went to another another Great Wall that was nobody cared, was a bit destroyed. So I went there and I slept. And those sec those two sketches that I did, I was totally frustrated because I had a big vision of it. Like, oh, I'm gonna do this when I'm when I'm there. I'm gonna I, I already had picture in my head. So it went totally the opposite. On the next day I decided, okay, I need to do it again. And a bit more relaxed. I do it. I did it, and and then, and then I, then it felt right. Then it felt okay. Now I have the Great Wall experience uh, together. For example, I, I just recall my times in uh, Namibia, which was a huge desert. There was nothing really special to sketch, like no icon uh, to be to to say to to that I have to. Draw. And then the animals were the 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 icons but they move and they were just like this you could see a zebra but then they, she would run away because it was she it was afraid of, of me so those times i need to rethink and appreciate what i have and just sketch what i what is around me so in some moments it was just a fact if i'm in in, 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 in Italy, for example, and if I go to the city, I know I want to sketch the dome or I want to sketch, I don't know, these buildings that I've seen it because I'm really attracted as well to urban sketching and people together and everything. But in some occasions, I was forced to sketch stuff that I, I wasn't even think about it because I, if I didn't sketch that, I could spend one, two weeks without sketching because there was no houses or monuments or icons that I could so I think through years while 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 I was growing as a traveler too I started to um take the journey as 
the reason to sketch. So I, w- I wouldn't run to sketch that cathedral or to, to sketch that monument. But if I happen to be there and if I have a, con- a feeling, a connection with the monument, I will do it. If I don't really feel anything, I would just look, eventually take a picture and save it as a memory. But sometimes I would sketch a person that I met, rather rather a place or rather a monument, you know. So it, it would it would go because it, it it's the story that that I'm living it's a, and I'm doing all the time so it's not something that you have planned to go to Singapore for example or Chicago and you go and you know I have I only have seven days I need to see this 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 that's totally different one of the biggest reasons you hear people not wanting to draw is that they don't want to make bad drawings they're afraid of making bad drawings they only want to make good drawings if any at all as any person who makes good drawings will tell you this is simply not possible the process of making good drawings involves putting yourself outside your comfort zone trying new things pushing the boundaries and learning to enjoy this whole process i talk about failure with nearly all of my guests in episode 2 Paul Heaston and I spoke about how our idiosyncrasies define our style and how a blind spot towards your faults can sometimes be very helpful. Well, and I think that is a sort of microcosmically a good descriptor of the way artists develop. Um I think if you're if you have a too much of a too strong a degree of intentionality about your career trajectory or the things you want to do, uh i think it'll all blow up um you know or it, it you can be you could you could wind up disappointed but if you just sort of follow uh these sort of natural um things these natural things that you start to get curious about when you when you solve one problem another problem pops up and you become curious about that and you just sort of organically find your way through these you know these things that you're interested in um i think that's you know pretty typical of you know artistic development or at least um one that isn't you're not trying to shape too intentionally it's a it's a fine line between being so discouraged that you you know you cease um being interested in the problem right or the challenge of the, you know sketching and overcoming problems to the point where the work becomes sort of antiseptic and wrote and not um visually compelling right so so you have to almost be not aware of that you have to have a little bit of a blind spot and and a little bit of a uh a confidence uh enough confidence that you're um you're not discouraged by those idiosyncrasies and maybe you're not even aware of them you don't see them um and that allows you to continue to make the the work while while not eliminating the thing that makes the work so interesting i was also delighted to hear about shari's attitude towards failure which she shared with me in episode 3 i think it's just you know those 10000 hours of moving paint around successfully and unsuccessfully and somebody I forget who one watercolorist that I was reading said um 
you know, one in four watercolors that he does is good. And I would say that's about a success rate that I would say, you know, 75% end up in a drawer or the trash. Um, or I turn them over and I use it for practice. So um, you just have to keep doing it again and again and again until you get that ratio of water to pigment and you understand the feel and it's really like a feel like it's almost like if you use a brush often enough you understand the weight of the brush with the right amount of water and the weight of the brush with too much water like you just understand it in your hand and then you look at your palette and you know how much if you've put too much water in the in that wash but it's because you've done the 10,000 hours in episode 5 I asked Don Colley what he would say to a non-artist to get them to try urban sketching. I asked him what it offered beyond the idea of making good or bad art. And he told me why the end result of drawing is not even the reason to get into drawing at all. Um, but when you draw, there's like that phrase that he or she who writes reads twice. I just think that when you draw, there's this we're in a rush. We're in a rush about doing things. We're in a rush to have this, take a million pictures of a sunset, do all this kind of stuff, multitask. One of the most compelling things about drawing for me is that it slows you down. There's a deliberativeness to it. There's a contemplativeness of it. There's a being in the moment. And, and there's the continued engagement with this thing. You're not tapping a keyboard. You're using, you're using this hands in which the tool becomes another bone in the hand. And, and, and I think that just as our eyes are so important and our ears are so important, our nose, our taste of knowing the world around us, this is still one of the most sophisticated things they have not been able to totally duplicate. And this is such a big reason why human beings are so intelligent. This thing grabs a lot of information it, it, it describes so much, it articulates so much, it, it, it brings your focus to something. There's this dance between the eye and the hand that's so nice. And if they can just get away from the idea that they have to be good at this craft, and it has to be perfect, or they have to draw like this person or that person, because even though we train to do that sort of thing, the beautiful thing is when you're done and you see the drawing, there's personality on the page. Yeah, so I, I, I would just I kind of encourage people to go for 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 that sort of engagement with the world around you. you know? There are a lot of great moments that I haven't included in this compilation. In episode six, Matt and I talk about the great pivot that he had to make in his twenty twenty plans with the sudden onset of the pandemic and then the lockdown. He was able to turn things around for himself and put together a book of lockdown sketches. You should buy it. It's quite amazing. In episode 8, Louis talks about being in the right place at the right time during the umbrella protests of Hong Kong in 2014. We go on to discuss his experiences with crowdfunding and his future plans for the world sketching tour. Check out his beautiful new website to see his tutorials. Most urban sketchers have had their plans turned upside down by COVID-19. But nearly everyone I know has adapted in interesting and wonderful ways. 
Marek, for example, does a lot of Instagram live sessions nearly every day now. From having their entire teaching calendars wiped clean, Paul Heaston, Suhita, Paul Wang and Shari have started numerous online workshops, Zoom sessions and other great initiatives to share their work with the world. The best way to listen to these conversations is in full. That's how they were designed. So if any tidbit made you curious, please consider visiting the episode itself and giving it your time. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. For myself, I have big plans for sneaky art in this new part of the world that I now live in. I hope to make a book of sneaky art of Vancouver. So if you know any publishers or literary agents, please tell them about me. I hope to move forward in making fresh and exciting work and learning and practicing new ways to tell stories about the world that I see. Subscribe to my newsletter to stay abreast with my latest ideas and plans, and maybe you can also help me to achieve them. There is a link to that in the episode description. With this new season of the Sneaky Art Podcast, I have many great plans. I'm going to speak with people who practice their art in novel ways to tell stories about the world, stories that only they can tell, and stories that can only be told in this unique way. Stories that really do need to be told. The lineup for the next few episodes is quite exciting and I'm eager to share these new conversations with you. As I mentioned before, you can support me and support this podcast now at the cost of just one cup of coffee. There's a link to that in the episode description. I remain grateful to all of you that do listen to this show. Please get in touch and tell me what you thought of this episode. Did you feel a connection with any of the artists? I hope you did, and I hope it pushes you to keep making art. Thank you, and have a good day.